You may be the first president in history to go down because you can't stop inappropriately talking about an investigation. I can definitively say the president's not a liar. I think it's uh, frankly insulting that that question would be asked. Up to now, we have no profiles in courage among the Republicans. Somebody really speaking out saying Trump is bad for the country. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Josh King, author of Offscript, hosting this weekend's show as Attorney General Jeff Sessions, sitting on a porch somewhere sipping a cold glass of lemonade, fresh off a scathing transcript of a New York Times interview of President Trump, ponders a future alongside recently exited justice officials James Comey and Preet Bharara. His decision to recuse himself from the Russia investigation in the words of Mr. Trump was, and I quote, very unfair to the president. Which, frankly, I think is very unfair to the president. How do you take a job and then recuse yourself? If he would have recused himself before the job, I would have said, thanks, Jeff, but I can't, you know, I'm not going to thank you. It's extremely unfair, and that's a mild word to the president. Trump cast is the show about the man who thinks a Times interview with Peter Baker, Michael Schmidt, and Maggie Haberman is just the sort of forum where he can wax nostalgic of military parades in Paris and those along Pennsylvania Avenue, if he could only have his way, which would give Pyongyang a run for its money. Oh, Mr. Trump, stay away from Peter, Michael, and Maggie when the tape recorder is rolling. It adds five news cycles worth of material to morning anchors and late-night talk show hosts whose cups overfloweth with new ways to drive the president's approval numbers ever lower. But really, is there too much intra-news cycle chatter about these latest linguistic faux pas from a man who thinks there's nothing newsworthy about sidling up to Vladimir Putin for a little dinnertime chit-chat in Hamburg about adopting Russian babies with no one but a Kremlin translator present? Maybe so. Maybe we're missing the forest for the trees. Maybe as we fetch and chortle, over the many times our president steps in it, there's irrevocable damage being done department by department to the regulations that keep our water safe, keep lead paint out of our schools, and keep low-income housing available. Just saying. Maybe we should be paying more attention to the deliberate march of those with lobbyist credentials wending their way into federal offices under the vaunted name of deregulation teams easing the burden on business, but rolling back decades' worth of protections put in place by presidents of both parties. Here is President Trump last April at the Department of the Interior. We're returning power back to the people. We've eliminated job-destroying regulations on farmers, ranchers, and coal miners, on auto workers, and so many other American workers and businesses. Today, I'm signing a new executive order to end another egregious abuse of federal power and to give that power back to the states and to the people where it belongs. Today on the show, we'll be talking with ProPublica's Robert Federici, who just published a long piece on how the swamp's not getting drained, it's just getting deeper. His article, Trump Has Secretive Teams to Roll Back Regulations, led by hires with deep industry ties, exposes the shadowy operatives hard at work below the radar while we gasp at the latest dodges, deceptions, and distractions from the Oval Office. We'll talk with Robert after this. 
Robert Federici of ProPublica, late of the Los Angeles Times, where he was renowned for uncovering misconduct at the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, has spent the first six months of the Trump administration mired in the swamp, sifting through records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act and other sources to expose the potential conflicts of interest and the shadowy goings-on of officials and appointees who've been hired to run our government. His latest piece, written with Danielle Ivory of the New York Times, is headlined, Trump has secretive teams to roll back regulations led by hires with deep industry ties. The subhead is even more ominous. It reads, we've found many appointees with potential conflicts of interest, including two who might personally profit if particular regulations are undone. Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Your work zeroed in on 71 appointees doing work around the government, 28 with potential conflicts of interest. Why did you go looking for these folks and how did you find them? So what this started with was in February, President Trump, he signed an executive order that required most federal agencies, you know, the significant ones to form task forces that would look at you know, the regulations within the agencies that are already in the books and uh, select ones that could be eliminated, rolled back, you know, modified in some way. So what we wanted to figure out was who are the people on these task forces and what have they done in the past? You know, what are their potential conflicts? Who have been their past employers? Uh, what are their financial holdings? Essentially, what could potentially motivate them as they select regulations to roll back? We expected the hard part to be, you know, sort of the scrub of who they were, but even finding their names was was very difficult. Yeah, I bet the agencies were forthcoming, opening their kimonos and sharing dates, names, times, titles, and the purpose for coming into looking things over, right? Uh, unfortunately not. Um, you know, uh, for a lot of agencies wouldn't even uh, sort of give us names. Uh, other ones, you know, gave us some names and redacted others, which was really unusual. Um, typically, that's something you do if someone's sort of in a sensitive law enforcement post, you know, not on a public task force like this. A couple other agencies, they gave us titles but not names, which which was very strange. And some some agencies did give us names. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, as far as, you know, we also wanted to look at their calendars, see their emails, basically get a sense of who they were talking to and who they were meeting with. And for almost every agency, uh, we have not yet been able to get that. So, Robert, bring us a little bit into your process. It's not like sitting in the Oval Office like Maggie Haberman did the other day with President Trump chatting over a Diet Coke. Tell us what it's like to have to sift through reports, make Freedom of Information Act requests, and wait for this information to come in. How do you spend your day? So you've got to be strategic about the FOIAs, right? Um, so, I mean, one thing we did is for names that we already had, we we scrubbed, um, you know, what their past employment was. And our thinking was that it's likely that they're probably communicating with past employers or with funders of past employers or with people generally in that industry. So one thing I like to do is I will find the domain names for those companies or those lobbying groups or those trade associations. Typically, it'll be the same domain for everyone within that organization. And I'll do a, a targeted FOIA request where I say, you know, any communication uh, between that government official and anyone who has that particular domain. And you'll do that for many domains and for many officials. Um, so it's 
it's I wouldn't call it a fishing expedition. I mean, it's targeted in a way, right? But it's it's also general enough to sort of cast a wide net. Now, before we get into the substance of what you actually found, as you made all these requests, gathered all this information, and made and did all this probing, what attitude did you bring into this story and this work? I mean, for some people. You might think that after eight years of a democratic administration, maybe some departments are overregulated. And as you say or quote one of the people in your story, a little deregulation from time to time is not such a bad thing. What did you think going into this? So the purpose of this first story wasn't so much to evaluate the public harm or the public good of the regulations they're looking at. It, it was to do a deep scrub of the people who are looking at these regulations, right? Um, and uh, to give readers a sense of what their potential conflicts could be, uh, what they could potentially be, you know, the kind of people they could be potentially influenced by. And, uh, you know, even if you've got close industry ties, there there are a lot of folks who believe that it's people who come from industry who are sort of most equipped to look at these regulations and determine which ones are superfluous because they, they know best. They're the ones who are regulated by, by uh, you know, these these rules. So we weren't taking a side one way or another, you know, uh, were things overregulated during the Obama administration? Are things likely going to be underregulated during the Trump administration? We just wanted to give readers a, a clear understanding of who the people doing this job were. So let's take a little run around the Washington Mall, shall we? Department by department, and talk about some of the people that you found at different in different offices and rooms within some of our vaunted federal agencies. Let's start with the Department of Education. It seems like the invasion of the charter school police and the for-profit college operators. Yeah, uh, you know, you've got folks in there who um, have either consulted for or have worked directly for, uh, uh, you know, for-profit college operators, uh, including in one case, uh, an operator that, uh, you know, was facing pretty serious allegations from the federal government. Um, you know, you've, you've got folks who have, or at least one who has consulted for what was one of the largest student loan guarantors, one of the largest private student loan guarantors in the country. Um, so these are folks who come from an industry background where their former employers, their former clients would certainly uh, benefit financially if some of these regulations were rolled back. And over at the Interior Department, you found at least 50 representatives of the oil and gas industry signing their names onto the visitor logs. But to a layman like me, people from the oil and gas industry would have business at the department just like the environmentalists would. Why, would, why should I be concerned about the people that you found? Well, you know, what was interesting to us wasn't just that they were meeting with folks from the oil and gas industry. One of the anecdotes we focused on in the story, um, you know, there was an individual, an appointee who had founded a nonprofit that was funded by, uh, you know, a, a large pesticide maker. This Syngenta. is Syngenta. Syngenta, yes. A, uh, an American company? It's it's Swiss-based. Um, but, but so he had started a nonprofit um, that was funded by Syngenta. And, uh, you know, upon getting the government job, he he left the nonprofit and, you know, we went through these sign in sheets and we saw that one of the first meetings he took now that he was inside of government was with one of Syngenta's top lobbyists. Laura Peterson. 
Yeah. And, and we approached Laura Peterson and we asked her, you know, what did you meet about? We, you know, we wanted to know, um, was it just sort of exchanging pleasantries? And what she told me was, you know, I don't think that's reporting information I have to give you. Uh, we also asked the interior department, uh, you know, what, what was this meeting about? Again, they wouldn't tell us. Um, but if you look at the lobbying disclosures that Syngenta has had to file, um, you know, you see clues. So they do a lot of work on the Endangered Species Act, for example. It creates barriers for them. Um, and that's that's a law that they've wanted to see change. So it's it's possible that they were meeting about that. And I, I just want to make one one point about the sign-in sheet. So we had, we had talked earlier about sort of side doors, right, when the agencies aren't transparent. So we had wanted to see the calendars of all these folks to see who they were meeting with. We obviously didn't get that despite many asks. So uh, we stumbled on these sort of, you know, hundreds of pages of handwritten sign-in sheets. You know, someone walks into the building, no matter who you're seeing, you've got to sign in. Uh, and again, we, we went through them, some of them not very legible, and looked for instances where the person coming in was meeting with one of the appointees we were interested in, you know, a small group of people. Uh, and that gave us a window into the kinds of people that may be influencing uh, the regulatory task force at that agency. So Laura Peterson carefully wrote out her name, Laura Peterson, coming to see people. Is that how clearly she put her name on the sign-in sheet? Yeah, so they have to print it and then they have to, <laughs> to you know, do their signatures. So luckily for us, they also have to print it or else we would have had no hope in deciphering. Because it's just a big L. Yeah, yeah, basically. So let's look at the EPA now. Uh, first, I mean, from your background work getting ready to do this reporting and just to me as a layman, seems the EPA is always, you know, target number one for regulatory rollback. Why? Well, it's it's an agency that um, can have a huge impact on the energy industry, you know, oil and gas companies, mining companies. So you'll typically see a lot of lobbying dollars focused on the EPA. And what we saw with the EPA's task force here is that you've got folks who in their past careers have been, you know, pretty closely aligned with uh, the energy industry. So, for example, uh, the, per the appointee who is heading up the task force there, she formerly worked for the Republican Attorney General's Association, which um, is... This is Samantha Davis, right? Yeah, Travis. You know, that is a that is an industry group that is is funded by oil and gas interests, by other energy interests. And, you know, one thing we wanted to do was to figure out, you know, was she meeting with any of her past funders um, now that she's inside the EPA? The spokeswoman told us was, you know, uh, we're happy to give you that information. You know, we want to be transparent. Uh, all you have to do is FOIA her calendars. Um, but the problem was we had already FOIA'd her calendars and her correspondence and, and the names for these folks. And we got the FOIA back and it didn't include the calendars and it was a completed FOIA. So it's something we had to appeal. That appeal is pending. Uh, you know, the results of it are pending. Um, so it was an instance where, you know, if, if we, if we didn't have the wherewithal to, to, you know, file FOIAs and try to get information in ways other than just going through a public information officer, it would have appeared that they were being more transparent than they actually were. Now over to the Department of Agriculture. Rebecca Adcock was the only member of the deregulation team that you found. She was a top exec at Crop Life America. Should that pose any problem for us? So, you know, the, the Department of Agriculture certainly has an impact on uh, pesticide makers, and that's what crop life is. It's a trade group for pesticide makers. 
Um, she was a lobbyist for that trade group and a, and a high-ranking executive within the trade association. And while she was there, she ex- actually directly lobbied uh, USDA, you know, her current employer. She was also formerly um, with a farm industry trade group and also in that capacity uh, had lobbied the USDA. And, you know, even more so than pesticide makers, you know, farmers are really affected by USDA regulations, you know, whether it be land conservation or, uh, you know, farm grants. You know, this is an agency that has a huge impact on their industry. Energy Department, you have the a former executive from the Edison Electric Institute. Right. So so he, uh, you know, the Edison Electric Institute, it's the trade group for uh, investor-owned electric utilities. And while he was there, he uh, was working with uh, ALEC, um, which is, you know, for folks who aren't familiar with it, it's basically an industry-funded model bill producer um, on, on the state level. And he worked with them in order to sort of combat incentives for homeowners to get rooftop solar panels. Um, and the reason, I mean, the reason electric utilities don't want that sort of uh, thing to be incentivized is because when when there are folks who are producing their own energy, uh, and even more so when they're producing their own energy and are able to sell it back to the utility, the utilities have to buy their extra energy from them. You know, that's not good for business, right? Even if it may have other pros. Um, so that's something you see electric utilities fighting, right? And that's something that uh, there, that was a fight that he was involved in. So anyway, now, now he's at the Department of Energy and one of his first acts since uh, getting into the agency is he's helping to launch a review of the, the reliab- reliability of the nation's grid system. Um, and what clean energy advocates fear is that one of the conclusions is going to be that solar panels, um, you know, and net metering is is actually harmful to the reliability of grid systems. And, you know, that may be the case because it, it fluctuates more than other types of uh, energy sources. So that would obviously be you know, that would hurt the clean energy cause and it would be a boon for electric utilities uh, if that conclusion was made. One final stop as we make our way around the Washington Mall, Robert, we're at the Department of Housing and Urban Development and Marin Casper uh, is the person on the deregulation team, but she has on her resume time as a director at Roofstock. Is there a conflict there? Right. So she helped launch the task force. Uh, they told us that she has since left the task force, uh, but she, you know, helped launch it. Um, and she had up to $50,000 of stake in that company and her former employer. And what that company did was essentially it was a marketplace for investors in single family home rental properties. And that's something that HUD regulations can really affect. That's an industry that, you know, these regulations can affect. So, for example, you know, HUD administers the Section 8 program uh, and, you know, uh, sets, you know, helps set the rules for what qualifies as Section 8 housing and what doesn't, right? So if, if all of that's, if any of that's tweaked, it could affect how attractive uh, Section 8 investments would be for, for the kinds of inventor, investors that Roofstock deals with. Um, you know, it's, it, she could have impact on a company that she still has a stake in. So Robert, after this whole tour around the Washington Mall, all of these departments and agencies and all of these members of the deregulation team, you end your piece in a Washington basement at an event held by the Environmental Protection Agency at a forum offering public comment on regulations rolling back rules to protect kids from lead paint. 
And so as I as you painted that picture, I thought in so many ways, this is about elections having consequences. What did you see when you went into that event? So that was actually my colleague, Danielle Ivory, who, who attended that event. But, you know, we, we it was it was interesting to us because you didn't see a ton of the big industry players in those rooms, you know, as far as the events that we did attend. And, you know, that was early in our reporting process. And, and what we what we learned was that a lot of the action is taking place behind closed doors. The Norman Rockwell scene of the town hall is what's playing out in this scene, but that's really not where the action is, right? Sure. And and we talked to, you know, folks who are uh, basically, uh, you know, helping industry advocate uh, their cause before these agencies, right? Um, so, you know, lawyers, lobbyists, economists, those sorts of folks. Um, and what they told us is that there's only so many regulations they'll have time to look at. And, you know, it takes years to roll these roll these things back. So, you know, if, if you want to get your regulation rolled back, you've got to get to the front of the line uh, so that you can ensure a friendly administration is still in place by the time this is finalized. And in order to do that, uh, you know, you, you've typically got to have deep pockets, right? You've got to have an economic analysis. You've got to have a legal analysis. You, you've got to be able to pre- present all of that to the agency so that they can use that. You know, these are short-staffed agencies so that they can use that as a basis for rolling these regulations back for their own analyses. We did see small business owners in these forums. They were heard. Uh, time will tell how much their asks are going to be considered and how much the asks of sort of bigger players are going to be considered. As you began this work, is this what you expected to find or did you get surprised? Well, to to some extent, right? I mean, before I answer that question, it's it's not just Republican administrations who have, sure. come, who have come into office, you know, sort of promising to cut red tape. So that's something that's been true of both parties going back decades. Uh, but it's not exactly surprising that you'd see more of a deregulation tilt with a Republican administration uh, and a more sort of regulatory tilt with a Democratic uh, administration. But, you know, two things stood out to us. One, it was the fact that for a lot of these agencies, they, they thus far, they have not been transparent at all about who is doing this work um, and how this work is being done. So that stood out to us. And again, I mean, a lack of transparency in Washington is I guess to some extent, not totally new, but this is a public task force. So you'd expect some degree of transparency. Um, and secondly, it wasn't just sort of the, the ideological tilt of these appointees that stood out, right? It was their very close and very recent ties to industries that are affected by the agencies these appointees are now at. So you see, you see incredibly close ties in a lot of cases. I mean, at EPA, for example, uh, one of the appointees is married to a top oil and gas lobbyist. Um, and she is part of a trade group that is lobbying her husband's um, task force. So, I mean, at, at times these ties can get very close. So you've identified the work and in many cases, the people involved. What is next for the for your work at and your team at ProPublica, the next step now that you've sort of identified who's who's doing this stuff? So we're continuing to hunt down names. Uh, there, we believe there are names we don't know, and and you know we want to be able to update our piece and and scrub their backgrounds. Uh, so one thing we did, which is actually kind of innovative, is we 
did a sort of a tip call out to readers, uh, both in the New York Times and at ProPublica. We created an email address, ProPublic, uh, excuse me, taskforce at ProPublica.org, so that uh, federal employees and folks on the private side who may have information can, can give us tips. Um, we've actually set up Facebook ads that specifically target federal employees um, so that we can sort of make sure we get as many relevant eyeballs on this as possible. But for the most part, we've we've scrubbed who these people are. You know, what we're interested in now is obviously what they're up to now that they're in there. So we want to know more about who they're meeting with, who they're talking to, uh, whether they're uh, having discussions with former employers, with former funders. And then beyond that, we want to see you know, the actions that actually take place. I mean, that's really when you get into the meat of this and it becomes relevant to readers, when you can point to particular regulations that are affected and illustrate how those regulations, you know, may have hurt business, may have protected the public. You know, you can really take a look at what the impact of this long process is. So if you're a federal employee who's uh, spent their careers at the Department of Education, Interior, EPA, Agriculture, Energy, HUD, uh, any one of these departments, uh, and you've been come in contact with people who are part of these regulation teams, who, again, Robert, should they email in with a tip? So that they can email uh, taskforce at propublica.org. Uh, if you also go on our webpage on either of these stories, you'll see my signal number and my uh, colleague Danielle's signal number. And, you know, for folks who aren't familiar with signal, it's a, it's a way to do encrypted uh, instant messaging and calling, basically. So if you're looking for a more secure route, you know, we're happy to get tips through Signal as well. So if you're listening to this podcast on the Washington Metro heading home, don't do it from your iPhone. Go home and do it through Signal. We have been uh, talking to Robert Federici of ProPublica. His piece, Trump has secretive teams to roll back regulations led by hires with deep industry ties. Robert, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend edition of Trumpcast. If you find yourself like Attorney General Jeff Sessions on a porch somewhere sipping a lemonade and want to comment about this show, tweet at us at RealTrumpCast. I am at at PolyOptics. That's at RealTrumpCast to go for the show. And Josh King is at PolyOptics. TrumpCast is produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Josh King. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.